Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome to 1951 Down Place, everyone. I'm Derek, and we'll be meeting up with Casey and Scott here in a few minutes to talk about the 1963 screwball haunted house mashup horror comedy film, The Old Dark House, from director William Castle. But I'm going to ask you to give me a moment first, because I need to check my voicemail. I'm in the market for a new home, and I'm expecting a call from my realtor. Let me show you a few of my latest listings. Now here's a lovely piece of unimproved property. A small plot in a quiet neighborhood. Just waiting for the right couple. Maybe you. Uh, This costs more money, of course. But it's guaranteed to last you a lifetime. And then some. Now if you're not afraid of something a little out of the ordinary. And you're in the market for an old dark house. Of corpse? A small plot lasts a lifetime and then I need a new realtor. I'll hit up Google after this episode of the show, which we'll get to right after this. Enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. Are you interested in property? Desperately in need of somewhere to live or die? Then we have the very place for you. Femme Hall, they call this old dark house. Why don't you drop in? Sometime. May I introduce a friend of Casper's, Mr. Pendrell? Such a surprise to find he had a friend. We're having you for dinner. Delicious. We should warn you that the Femme family have some very killing habits. But don't lose your patience. You may lose your life. 
Living in the old dark house is Roderick, the eldest fan. Then there's Cecily, the prettiest and youngest. Something terrible is happening here. You've got to leave before the others find out. The others? Who are the others? Well, there's Aunt Agatha, who loved knitting, surrounded by a host of wool-gathering relatives. Something or someone must have needled her. Must have been murder. She always knitted so carefully. This is Potiphar, and let's face it, he is plain potty. There isn't much time left, Mr. Pendrel. There isn't much time. Morgana, of course, is the femme fatale, one of the amenities of the house. Don't you have any boyfriends? I always had to be home by 12 o'clock. Well, things were just getting started, and I had to stop. Also in the old dark house, you'll find Casper and Jasper. And dead or alive, they look the same. You're, you're there, and you're dead. No, I'm not. Yes, uh... Tom was just a visiting American who came by accident, and by accident, he was still alive. Remember, we are the sole agents for this desirable property, an exclusive residence that's murder to run. It will be vacant any moment now, on dead easy terms. So that was the trailer from The Old Dark House, a William Castle Hammer Films production from 1963. This was the only time they collaborated with one another. And this is more of a comedy than a horror movie, despite the fact that it was shot at Bray Studios, the home of you know Frankenstein and Dracula and all the other classic and completely enjoyable horror films. Coming from Hammer. Uh, Hammer is not just a horror studio. They did adventure films and mysteries and psychological thrillers like we talked about. Paranoia here on the show a while back. And they did do a series of comedies as well. The Old Dark House is one that doesn't get talked about a lot. So we thought we'd talk about it here. Well, there's also another horror uh, link to this film because it's a remake of the 1932 film of the same, same name, which was a horror film. Right, and you know, since you brought that up, I'd like to go ahead and just kind of kvetch a little bit. Technically, I'm going to argue with you guys, it's not really a remake in that it is an adaptation of a novel that just happened to be adapted once before. And this is kind of a little nitpick with me. Everybody says, you know, the thing is a remake when it's really not. It's just a, another adaptation of another film or another book that's already been made into a film. It's like, you know, The Last Temptation of Christ is not the, a remake of Jesus Christ Superstar. It's just they happen to be based on the same source material. Technically, Hammer's only remake uh, was The Mummy which was a remake of the Universal films, whereas all the other films they did just happen to be based on literary material that's been done by other studios. And I'm ranting now, so I'm going to stop. But yes, that's right. <laughs> it was done before uh, as The Old Dark House. It's directed by James Whale, starring Boris Karloff. About 30 years prior, I believe, is, is the timeline on that. Have either one of you seen that version of the film? No. I have not. I watched it. Uh, just recently, uh, in fact, yesterday, <laughs> to uh, familiarize myself with the source material or, or at least the original film before going into this one. And man, are they completely different. From what I've read about it, uh, they are completely different. And I wonder if the 63 version suffered a little bit by having it have the same name. 
you know, uh, from what I understand, though, the 1932 version isn't very true to the source material. Having not read the original novel, which is a novel called Benighted by writer J.B. Priestley, I don't know how close the Hammer film is. But from what I understand, James Whale's version is a complete departure from the original novel. Although in the 1932 film, they do mention or do have some lines that make me feel that they came directly from the novel. At one point, there's a couple of characters talking in a barn and one person says to the other, boy, this is sure one benighted evening, which benighted being the novel's title. You know, I don't know. So for all we know, the Hammer version is more true to the source material. I, I don't know <laughs> if I buy that because the source material uh, uh, surely couldn't be. I'll leave that up to you, Derek, to uh, read that, read that uh, source material and confirm that for us. Well, because all of us have such a very short to-read pile, I, I'll just put it right at the top of the list. I don't mind. <laughs> uh, so this movie is available right now as part of the William Castle box set. It's buried in that DVD set. It doesn't uh, look like a Hammer film. It doesn't say Hammer anywhere on the box. It's kind of hidden in the mix, for better or worse. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to see it, you can get it as part of that box. And it's pretty easy to get a hold of. So it is available out there. Well, I don't even think when you're watching the film, when you watch the credits, it's not till the very end credits that Hammer is even mentioned. Yeah. They're not, they're not mentioned at all in the opening credits. Absolutely yeah. not. Even though William Castle's name is mentioned twice as director. Yes. And, and uh, you know, I actually, like I said, I just watched this the other day, so I took some notes. So uh, I'd be happy to dive into a synopsis of the film. Go for it. I can tell by Unless Casey <laughs> wants to. Oh, go right ahead. <laughs> So I mentioned the opening credits. Which were awesome. Yeah, were, they're great. <laughs> they were designed by Charles Adams of Adams Family fame. Very cool. Uh, from what I understand, he had a lot to do with the design of that sequence and that sequence only. Yes, he was very uh, influenced by the original 1932 film. And uh, he, he his hand is actually seen in the credits because he signs the credits. Yep. As a... <laughs> I'm sure he was wearing a glove or makeup or something, but he said this is kind of hairy, beast-like hand comes out and then signs the credits uh, with his distinctive signature, which was very cool to see. And one of the trailers for this film, the William Castle version of the trailer where he introduces the movie, he does mention Charles Adams by name as well. It's kind of name drop a little bit. Now, if you're not afraid of something a little out of the ordinary and you're in the market for an old, dark house, especially designed by Charles Adams, I've got just the thing. For you. Uh, at the end of the credit sequence, we see produced and directed by William Castle. And then the next screen, directed by William Castle. <laughs> so William Castle's mentioned a couple of times uh, throughout this whole thing. And Hammer, not very much at all. Even though it was shot at Bray, uh, you can see, um, I forget the name of the building, but there's a, a house that you see. And I don't know if we're supposed to believe it is the old dark house or, or whatever, but one of the houses uh, is the same uh, image that is used in like Curse of Frankenstein and some other previous Hammer films, but other than that, well, no, I'll go. I'll go one further. The interior of the house is the same as the interior of the house from Paranoiac. Paranoiac was shot here, as well as a handful of others uh, after the old dark house. Because so. I'm watching this and I'm thinking, this hallway looks familiar with the the stairs and where the rooms are located. And I'm, it took me a little while to realize that it was Paranoiac. 
which I know you guys have always told me that uh, a lot of films were shot at Bray Studios and I would start recognizing some things over and over again. And that was, for me, the first, oh, yeah, I recognize that from another film, which was kind of cool. <laughs> In addition to Paranoiac, uh, the film Nightmare and The Kiss of the Vampire were also shot. In that same set without a lot of refitting. And again, it's Bray Studios, so of course things are going to start to look familiar. Uh, but we don't start at that set. We actually start at like a, a private club, and Tom Penderell, played by Tom Poston, is driving uh, to the private club to return a car to his friend Casper Femme. Casper Femme is played by Peter Bull. Uh, the Femmes are the, uh, the family who owns the old dark house, and we're going to meet a whole clan of them as we go. Uh, Casper's gambling away, but as soon as Tom Penderell shows up, his luck changes, and uh, Casper promptly loses. Uh, Casper, um, I'm sorry you lost. Who did bring me luck? Bad. Sorry. That's all right. But that doesn't seem to bother Casper all that much. I mean, he throws in a jibe here and there, but he's more concerned because he's got to go back. And yeah. it gets very vague and very oddly delivered here. Yeah, I, I'm watching that scene where he's he's at the the casino and and they're playing uh, baccarat, and I'm like, oh, I'm watching a James Bond film again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing so exciting as a James Bond film happens here. Instead, no. <laughs> Casper starts. Uh, is this where Casper starts doing some sing-songy rhymes? You know, Humpty Dumpty's having a wall. Humpty Dumpty's having a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. What? Yes, he does mention that, and he also doesn't want to ride back with Tom. Because Tom's bad luck. Because Tom's bad luck. And, and then he drops the line is that he's going to fly. This kind of sets a tone for the film. And I don't know how much of this was brought by Castle versus uh, the, screen, the credited screenwriter Robert Dillon, if it's from the original novel. But there seems to be some snappy dialogue back and forth every once in a while. Some moments that actually could be quite clever. Like, I've got to fly. Okay, let's go. No, literally, I'm going to get in a plane. You know, there's this kind of back and forth. And maybe that's not the best example. But throughout the film. Well, I was, I was bringing that up. Did either of you guys get the impression that he might be a vampire? <laughs> yeah, I definitely did. Because there's that line and then there's another line when he starts meeting the family and is saying they're going to have him for dinner. Uh, the, I was teetering back and forth between if he was going to be a vampire or it was going to be a uh, Jekyll and Hyde sort of situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because he was uh, he was there during the day, but then he disappeared at night. So it makes you think that he was out doing something crazy. Yeah. So uh, the connection between Tom and Casper is that Tom's staying at Casper's flat. Tom doesn't refer to himself as Casper's friend, but Casper's always like, well, you're my dearest friend. So I don't know what the extent of the relationship is there, but Casper's gone at night. So Tom uses the flat during the, you know, in the evening during the day when Casper's at home at the flat, Tom's off doing his job, which he's a car salesman. So he's out pressing the flesh and selling cars and whatever it is else Tom Post and does in a hammer film. But eventually Casper convinces Tom to come to Fem Hall with him that night. So Tom drives by himself to Fem Hall. And during the car trip, we learn that Tom's a very anal person when it comes to car care and car maintenance. He's kind of a fuddy-duddy. You know, he well, starts to smoke. And I, I didn't get the anal. He was delivering that car to Casper, so he didn't want to damage it anyway. Because you see him when he, in the very beginning when he gets to the casino, he gets out of the car, walks a few steps, and then turns around and comes back and, and wipes off his fingerprints. You know, so very, very proud of what he's doing. Exactly. Making sure his product is okay. 
Which, well, the guy and Casper yeah. is supposed to be buying a very expensive American sports car, so. Yes, I've always wanted a foreign car. No, no, I brought you the car. The one you bought for me. It's a beauty, a beauty. And it's American? Oh, yes, American all the way. I've always wanted a foreign car. <laughs> and this is the best. I never represent an inferior product. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, he's, a, he's definitely not being just anal. He's just taking good care of it to present the best product. I get, I thought that was pretty apparent. So the, the point is, though, is that he's very kind of fuddy-duddy about the whole thing. In that, and, and kind of addle-minded every once in a while. He doesn't think about the fact that he's smoking in the car until after he starts smoking and uses the ashtray. And then, oh, I, I got to take care of this. You know, there's this kind of exaggerated kind of mugging for the camera kind of, oh, oh you know, kind of <laughs> approach to it. It's a convertible, and then it starts to rain, so he's got to pull over and put the hood up. And this is the first similarity that I noticed between both films is that the first film, it's raining all the damn time. I mean, it's a flood. There's landslides. I mean, it's it's everybody is soaking wet. So finally, it starts to rain in this version of the film. So you know, Tom's got to deal with that, and unfortunately, it means the car gets all muddy. And I did notice that. And uh, once he gets to Fem Hall, he can't get in because the gate's locked, and he gets out to try to open the gate. And you notice the side of the car is just covered in mud. And Tom doesn't seem to care so much, but again, it's raining. Maybe he'll deal with that later. He can't get into the gate because the gate's locked, so he starts shaking the gate and knocks, what was it, a gargoyle? Yes. Off the top of one of the columns of the gate, and it falls dead center, smack in the middle of the car's hood, and I guess so hard that it made the car drop its engine. Or at least tons of parts off of it. (laughs) Yeah. I went back three times trying to figure out what that pile of crap was under the car. (laughs) (laughs) And... If Tom Poston's performance hasn't included into us yet, at this point, this is where it solidly becomes an attempt to be funny for me. Because that's such a goofy kind of, really, kind of moment. Yeah. You know, this pile of whatever. I mean, it looks like canisters of something. And I'm, I'm not a car guy, but I don't think there's that in a car. And I don't think it would fall out that way. But I don't know. I don't. Well, there was that. But for me, it was more the soundtrack leading up to this point. Because they went pretty far to make the score pretty zany in the background for this. And you were starting to get the hints of that early on in the uh, casino and whatnot as you get bits and pieces. And then it started to ramp up even more as he was driving out there. And then it just continued to get more and more over the top as the film went on. Yeah, was was the soundtrack done by Spike Jones and his city slickers? (laughs) (laughs) It did have that kind of, you know, kind of vibe to it. Uh, The score, since you brought it up, was by Benjamin Frankel, who is somebody who... It doesn't have a lot of Hammer experience or a lot of Hammer films on his resume, but he's a great composer. He did do The Curse of the Werewolf for Hammer, but he did things like The Battle of the Bulge and The Night of the Iguana. I mean, some really interesting score work in the 60s, uh, but what he did here seems so out of character for him. Everyone has their misfires. (laughs) I don't know what that's like. (laughs) I I thought the score was horrible. Yeah, it's Bad. odd. 
I would honestly say in in the grand scheme of this movie, you know, looking at it back at it from beginning to end, I think I would have enjoyed this movie a little more if it wasn't if it didn't have that score because I think the score was just downright distracting at some points and it just made it it so overblown the tone the tone what it could have been you know some nice subtle black comedy to just something kind of create silly yeah <laughs> more than anything you know if either that or get rid of the serious tones in the film and just go all out that way but it yeah. feels it feels like the score is incongruous to what's happening in the film but then a lot of this film feels like it should have gone one way or the other, and it's trying real hard to walk on both sides of this. You know, we're we're a, a dark comedy. No, we're a flat out farce. No, we're not. You know, just everything about this film seems to struggle, and I think that's most evident in the score. Like you were saying, it's so odd. But I love his work on the Curse of the Werewolf. Like I said, everyone has a misfire. Yeah, but you look at this, and especially with since we saw Chaz Adams in the doing the intro credits. Yeah, this movie's bouncing back and forth. They could have gone, they could have gone more subtle and made it like the original, the old Dark House, at least what it sounds like with a little bit more uh, black humor to it. To or they could have gone to the full extreme and made it like the Adams Family. Yeah, and I think that would have worked too. Mhm. Mhm. Uh when was the Adams family was this before or after? Well, I forget the years on the Adams family. This was 1963 for the film. When did the Adams family happen? Uh, I hear somebody clicking on Wikipedia right now. <laughs> yeah. I honestly don't know off the top of my head. Oh, let's see here cuz I don't know when he started the comic strips and whatnot either. Looks like uh, uh 1938 was the comic strip. Yeah. And then TV show is 64 to 66. Okay, so just after this. So maybe this is a grand experiment that made Chaz Adams say, I could do this better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so back to Tom. He's trying to get into the to Femme Hall. The gate won't open until he breaks his car. Then the gate, does, the gate does open for him. But just a little bit. He can sneak in, kind of squeeze his way in, get to the front door. The doorbell's been disconnected. And there's this kind of... He's going to ring the doorbell. Whoa, oh, no. And this over-exaggerated kind of, oh, the doorbell's not working. Oh, here's the door knocker. I'll try that. Oh, it's stuck. You know, and this is kind of, again, played for kind of laughs or camp feel. Finally, the door knocker does open. Which opens up a trap door that drops Tom, I guess, into the basement of Fem Hall. Filled with coffins. Yeah, and there's these crates in the basement <laughs> wrapped up that look like coffins. And uh, as Tom's trying to figure out where he's at, what's going on, and what are those things wrapped in the corner, a gun sticks out from a door leading down into the basement, and somebody starts yelling at him. And this is where we meet Potiphar Femme, played by Mervyn Jones. And he is the most scatterbrained character of the bunch, uh, seems to be the most... Ah, uh, kind of you, you played for humor's sake. I must apologize, Mr. Pendrel, for your abrupt entrance. You see, it, it's an old house, old and dark. Yes, I see. 
Yeah. You know, I potter sometimes. The trap door at the entrance hasn't worked right for a hundred years. Used once to discourage visitors. I fixed it, you see. It works very well now, doesn't it? Oh, yes, yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> Ooh, next time, don't use the knocker. Ring the bell. Yes, I will. You know who he reminded me of? Hmm. The Mad Hatter from the, orig- the animated Alice in Wonderland, the Disney film. The way he was always scattering off and just... I can see that. You know, real quick lines, and then he was leaving the uh, set. You know, just leaving the scene. I liked his character. (laughs) (laughs) He's probably the one that was the most well-defined for me out of all the femmes. He was nuts. (laughs) I mean, he he would drive me crazy to be with in real life, but uh, yeah, he was probably... I don't know, the most recognizable to me in terms of what type of character he's supposed to be. Yeah, and uh, so he's Casper's uncle, uh, and he brings Tom upstairs, and you know he understands. Oh, you're Casper's friend. That's okay. You should be here. I should be here. Turns out Casper's dead. He's died like an hour ago, and I know that might sound like a spoiler, but it's all over the damn trailer. So <laughs> Casper died before Tom got there, and instead of calling the police or the doctor or whatever, they already have a coffin ready for him. So they just put him in the coffin. Tom seems quite taken aback by all of this, uh, especially since Casper's <laughs> eyes are wide open and has this horrible grimace on his face. He's the only one that seems to be taken aback by this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Nobody else seems to be overly bothered by the fact that Casper is dead, including Cecily, played by Jeanette Scott, who's also in the room and starts crying as Tom's about to leave. No, I mean, I heard you crying. Yes, I I've been sitting over there. It seems so long now, since we brought him here. You're a friend of Casper's. Yes, I, I, I was his friend. Well, I mean, well, I sell cars. I mean, I, I, I sold him a car. He advertised for a roommate, and I moved in. You must be his cousin. I'm Cecily Fem. I'm Tom Penderell. Jeanette Scott. We recognize her from Paranoiac. So I thought she played a completely different character here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was her first Hammer film. And uh, the fact that she got to get out of this alive and appear in Paranoiac is great. I mean, I think it's a testimony to her acting ability. I thought she was awesome in this. I thought her performance was really good. She's one of my favorite characters in this. Yeah. So, uh, so she shows up. And earlier, when Casper Ka- invited Tom to his home, he mentioned my cousin. You've got to meet my cousin. She likes men. You like pretty girls. You know, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe this is the cousin that Casper's trying to hook Tom up with. Uh, But uh, Cecily seems more interested in getting Tom out of the place. You've got to leave. You've got to get out of here before it's too late. Well, it is too late because Roderick Fram, played by Robert Morley, shows up. And he seems to be the the patriarch of the family, even though he doesn't seem overly threatening or overbearing. Everybody seems to defer to him. He's in charge, and he insists that Tom stay for dinner and meet the rest of the family. Now, you're here now, and if Casper invited you, well, there must be a reason why. And do we want to give that secret away? Which secret are you referring to? (laughs) There's an implication that Tom might be related. Oh, yeah. Well. Anything strike you, Mr. Pendrell? Same nose, same mouth, same hairline? Yes, I do see the resemblance. Of course, you're fuller in the face than he is. The resemblance isn't to me. It's to you. I didn't think he looked a thing like that painting. 
I don't I think either. so either <laughs> at all. And I really think that was just part of Roderick's uh, paranoia. Yeah. Because I thought yeah, he was very, very paranoid in the whole film. He was, you know, because of the will and everything. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if it was part of the joke, too, because when because Tom Poston says, oh, yeah, it looks just like you, except for you're fuller in the face, which is essentially saying you look fatter now. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it did look like that guy. It looked like yeah, Roderick. It looked, it looked more like Roderick than it did Tom. Yeah, I saw absolutely no resemblance at all. It's like... <laughs> And that was the only time it was mentioned, too, is the, th- is the potential relation. Like, why even bring it up? Really? Yeah. It just didn't make sense to me. As a matter of fact, when he mentioned that, it, no, it looks like you, when he told Tom Poston, no, it looks like you. I had the same before the look on my face as Tom Poston did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> and And it's here where we start to learn the story of what's going on with the femmes, why they always have to be at the house by midnight. And I don't know if I do want to mention that that does get kind of spoilery, but there is a reason why they all have to come back to the old dark house. And it's not nearly as mysterious as, you know, they're all vampires or anything like that. Uh, there's kind of a, a slapsticky kind of feel as to why they have to be there. And I'm not talking like, you know, modern slapstick, but more like slapstick of that era kind of, they've all got to come back at this one time and they kind of get bumbling about it when they run into each other in the hallway. You know, just this kind of uh, vibe to it. Uh, they do have dinner. They meet the rest of the femmes like uh, Agatha Femme, who is what, Casper's mother? Casper, yeah. Uh, played by Joyce Grenfell and Morgana Femme, played by Fenella Fielding, who is another cousin of Casper's. So maybe this is the cousin Tom's supposed to meet up be- with because she clearly likes men. <laughs> and, and and there's two empty ta- chairs at the table. Couple, of, Yeah, there were some empty chairs at the table. I said those were for the others. Do we ever meet? Well, the others are Morgan Femme. Uh, which is Morgana's father. He's played by Danny Green. And Morgan is the character that was played by Boris Karloff in the first film. And the similarities between the characters in, in the two films is that they're both silent throughout the most of the film. Uh, in the James Whale version, he's a, he's dumb. He cannot speak. And he is a brute. And he does cause trouble for you know our heroes. You know He's kind of a thug. Uh, in this one, Morgan seems less thuggish and more... He just dislikes everyone else. <laughs> he dislikes everybody, and there's a certain kind of father of the farmer's daughter kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the farmer's farmer's daughter you know, is, is having a, 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 a moment with, you know, a, a cute boy in the barn, and the father walks in with a shotgun, and, you know, this kind of, what are you doing to my daughter kind of vibe, you know? Yep. Yeah, Morgan is a little bit more than the innocent farmer's daughter, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we learn about the history and why they all have to be there. And, and Tom doesn't want to be there, but it's it's raining now and he can't leave. So they set him up in the, in the home as well. They set him up with a room to stay the night. There is an interesting moment that I found intriguing when Tom and Agatha have a scene together. Agatha, the mother, knits. My favorite scene in the whole film. Yeah, yeah. Do you yes. want to talk about it or Agatha? Like, like, like Derek just said, knits. And in, in almost every scene up to this point, you see her knitting, and she's just—you can't tell what she's making, but she's just knitting. That she and Tom have this talk, and and at one point, you know, Tom's asking what she's making, and she's like, "I'm not making anything. I'm just, I'm just knitting." Uh, last year, I knitted a mile. May I have a little more wool, please, Mr. Pendrew? 
You're a bright young man. Very like my Casper. Knitting relaxes one, you know, particularly in a time of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Just a little more. Oh, I'm sorry. What are you making? Oh, I'm not making anything. No, I just start at the beginning and uh, knit to the end. <laughs> it's sure to turn into something. Oh, yeah. Knitting is my life, you see. And hands should never be idle. You do a lot of it, huh? Last year, I knitted about uh, 150 miles. You knit miles? Of wool. <laughs> yes, many miles and much time. I've captured time and space in my stitches. And um, she talks about how she wonders what would happen if she stopped knitting. And Tom says, you mean to you? N no, the world. You know, what would happen with the world if I stopped knitting? And just the way she was acting, I thought she was really creepy in that scene about she was thinking like she's like knitting time or knitting what's going on yeah. in the world. Like she was one of the fates. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's creepier, all the more creepy because she smiles through this whole film. She's got this pleasant ah, kind of smile the whole time. And she's delivering these lines about how she might be in charge of the world. But she's got this blissful smile on her face the whole time. Yeah, it, as it, she's knitting. As she's knitting. <laughs> and you know, in the next next scene right after that, um Roderick is talking to her and she talks a little bit more about her knitting and she's showing different parts of what she's knitting, like this was a good day and this was a bad day. This was a particularly bad day, and she's showing her knitting. It all looked the same to me. I couldn't tell the differences. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she was just that and her knitting and, and that creepy smile she had. Yeah. That that is a really good scene in this. This was one of the better scenes. You see, if this film had a lot of scenes like this, I think I would have liked it a lot more. But yeah. Uh, so we have that. And then Tom is put up in the bedroom and his clothes are still wet. I guess he's been eating in wet clothes and, and he's been soaked the whole time. Or maybe it was just an excuse for Morgana to get his pants off. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, his pants need to be pressed, or, or Morgana thinks they need to be pressed. So while he's in the bedroom with the door closed, she kind of slinks up to him and offers to press his pants, which <laughs> you can take any number of ways, I suppose. You're damp. Oh, yeah, the rain. You know, and... Let me press them for you. My pants? Mm. Give them to me. Oh, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> she did put her hand on his thigh to find out that they were wet. Well, that was nice of her. <laughs> I wanted to know more about that actress because I feel like I've seen her in something else. And I it turns out that I did in a short movie a couple years ago called Wish Baby. I, I did some research on her, and one of the first things Wikipedia says about her is that she is England's first lady of the double entendre. And having read that about halfway through this film, everything out of her mouth at that point to me sounded naughty. <laughs> and and I, I know it was supposed to be to begin with, but <laughs> uh, everything, you know, I'll press your pants. So you, uh, <laughs> that's Tom Poston, man. That's the handyman from the Newhart show. Leave him alone. 
but before the pre- the pants pressing scene, we do get some time with Tom and Cecily in the bedroom as well. And, you know, she does a little sing-songy rhymes for him as well. And, and we learn about all the different clocks in the house, which becomes important later on in the story. And how each clock had a name and a rhyme that went with it. And, you know, I think maybe I skipped over this, but at one point, is it before here we hear the uh, recording of the yes of the rhymes? Yeah. So there's this recording, uh, this tape recording. Well, they don't know it's a tape recording at first, but there's this voice is being heard throughout the entire home of these little sing-songy rhymes of, you know, each ch- uh, each clock going off being named after like a church tower or something like that. Now, I'll, I'll drop a clip in from the movie to illustrate what I'm talking about here because I don't think I'm doing it justice. But it's kind of creepy. Um, A mother hen knows her chick. Four, six, the bank wins. Gay go up and gay go down. Ring the Casper. bells of London town. It is. Oranges and lemons. Oranges and lemons. Oranges and lemons. Oranges and lemons. Why? Until Tom finds the tape recording of it and turns it off. Oh, because they all think it's uh, Casper. Yeah, Casper was being funny and just kind of joking with him and left something for them all um, before his untimely demise. Uh, so we have that moment, then Morgan comes in, or Morgana, excuse me, and then Morgan comes in. This is the first time we meet Morgan. And it is played up so, I mean, he has that farm, don't mess with my farmer's daughter kind of vibe, but he also has this kind of Pluto from Popeye vibe ah, as well. Yes. That's what I was going to say. The guy who would have been a perfect Pluto. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, he he sees Tom with his pants off with his daughter and it closed the bedroom and <laughs> he picks Tom up by his neck and throws him across the room. And it's just this goofy kind of ah, moment. I just, ah, it just didn't fit for me, but it's so goofy. So it's okay. Cause the movie's supposed to be a castle film, but it's a hammer film. So it's just, ah, their goofy <laughs> moment later in the film, I thought worked pretty well in the basement. <laughs> Which we'll get to in time, but yeah, I'm just it was the same kind of feel as what this scene was, but I think later on in the movie it worked better. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to talk too much more about it because I, I don't want to start giving too much away. Although in the trailer we do notice that, or we know that people start dying left and right around them. Obviously, Tom's life is in danger as well. He's given a bowl of warm water to clean up with. Turns out it's acid. Uh, uh, who delivered the acid? I don't really know. I don't believe Morgana was the one to deliver it, although she could be just as crazy as everybody else in the Femme House. Uh, we will also meet Jasper, which is Casper's brother. He's played also by Peter Bull. His twin brother. Yeah, his twin brother, which um, he's got such a distinct look <laughs> and an odd look. When we first meet Jasper, I mean, he looks like one of the Walking Dead because he's got the same rictus grin on his face he looks like one of the walking dead from plan nine from outer space <laughs> that's true yeah uh he looks like casper in the coffin you know he got this kind of dead i thought he looked yeah. like uh lon cheney in phantom of the opera a bit too ah so he's one of the ones that was missing at the dinner table 
And uh, really, I don't want to go too much further because then it starts turning into this kind of madcap slapstick kind of mystery. What's going on in the old dark house? Oh, it's spooky. You know, oh, people are dying, but it's spooky. I actually found it relatively bloodless, which I thought was odd for a Hammer film. But then it is a William Castle production, so he wasn't one for gore. Uh, But considering some of the deaths um, in the film, I was surprised at the lack of blood. Yeah. Especially at this point in Hammer's career or Hammer's existence. Uh, We're talking things plunged into people's necks and it just seemed very clean. I honestly wonder if Hammer's involvement with this was just financial. Potentially. Yeah. And location. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hammer had a relationship with Columbia, which was the uh, distribution part of the deal. I wonder if, yeah, it was a financial thing and they were using the money that they got out of the deal to uh, upgrade Bray Studios. I can see that. You know, because of who they are and how frugal they were and how budget conscious they always were about everything they always did. And since this was the film that kind of revamped Bray Studios for Paranoia, I can get to the vampire and so on. I just, the the takeaway I got was... uh, they used the money to upgrade. Well, they did need to upgrade. I mean, the roof was leaking everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rain is an ever-present presence through the entire film. It's leaking. It's it's pouring they outside. Somebody to clean up all those damn cobwebs too. <laughs> yes, yes, they did. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, I don't really want to go too much more into the story because it does get a little spoilery if I do. Uh, but it does get very. Who's killing who? Why are we really here? What's going on? Will it ever stop raining? Casey mentioned a moment in the basement. Do we want to talk about that just so we can have some closure to what you were saying there? Uh, that's fine. There was just a moment when um, Morgana's dad came down and kind of found uh, Tom in the basement. I can't remember exactly what, how he ended up down there, but there was a fight that went through because there's one of the things that was more interesting in this movie for me is all the traps that were set up around the house for these people to get into. And there was a clever trap with the, uh, with the gun cabinet that happened before here. But then once Morgana's death, it shows up, there was another slapsticky fight between him and Tom. And at one point, he had Tom tied to a rope, a line hanging from the ceiling, and basically swinging him out into the brick wall head first, which I got a good chuckle out of. <laughs> and you can see that in the trailer as well, that they kind of swinging back and forth. And it, it doesn't the music get kind of... That is the worst music in the <laughs> entire film, is that scene. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute worst music. I mean, it was... Oh, definitely. It was bombastic. It, it really uh, pulled away, even from a slapstick fight scene, it detracted from it. It was that bad. So if I'm able to find a soundtrack album for this, you don't necessarily want it, is what you're saying? I, yeah, no, I, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I like how both of you are like, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know, the film itself, I, I did some research. Yeah, before watching the film this time around, I did some research, and maybe I should have done it the other way around because I feel like it might have colored my opinion of the film. This is the first time I've seen it. I'd never seen it before. I've owned that William Castle box set for a while, and I've just never cracked this one open because 
the old Dark House, William Castle. What's that? I want the Tingler. You know, I want when I think William Castle, that's what I think is these these gimmicky kind of things. And I feel like the old Dark House didn't have any of that outside of Charles Adams doing the opening credits. Um, You know, I really feel like Castle didn't fit. And I love Castle a lot. I mean, he's not a great filmmaker. I mean, he's he's ham-fisted and over-the-top and not very subtle. But damn it, he's fun. And I, I just don't feel like he fit with the hammer mold or this particular production. Although, if you go back and you, you read the entry on this film in The Hammer Story by Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes, it kind of implies that William Castle was working on a, a version of this film before Hammer got involved. And man, I, I don't know if this movie could have been better if it had didn't have Hammer and it was a, you know, it was a, a homegrown American production by William Castle, or if it could have been better if it was just Hammer. I, I don't know. These are two great tastes, but it doesn't don't taste great. Things. No, well, I mean, I like my chocolate, I like my peanut butter, I like my Reese's peanut butter cups, but this is not a Reese's peanut butter cup. I, I'm wondering if you're in Casey's, and I'm don't mean this in a bad way, but your baggage with Hammer Films is coloring your idea because I didn't see this as a Hammer film at all. Hammer probably rented out the studio and for a production credit and some money and had nothing else to do with it. Well, that's possible, but there's the same time that this isn't quite the, up to what we expect from a William Castle movie either. Because, I mean, like Derek said, well, they're... William Castle has a distinct flavor, so to speak, to his movies with all the gimmicks and stuff like that. And to me, it kind of fell short on both sides, on both the Hammer side and the William Castle side. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Hines from Hammer was involved in the production once Castle was brought on board. So it's not like they were totally hands off. But, man, I I think maybe Scott's right in this case. And and Listeners, go ahead and isolate that little clip because I'll probably never say it again. And send it to me. I want it as a ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think Scott's right in this case is that, you know, our, our hammer baggage, which is baggage I'm proud to have, might have colored my experience of the film. Yeah, um, I, I definitely possible. And I, I also wonder if the hammer baggage colored the experience for the censors because when this was released in the UK or – was it the UK where it was released this way? The first time around, it had a bunch of stuff cut. Yeah. The first rating it got was an X. Which blows my mind. Me too. Yeah. Where? where what? Because there wasn't even any blood. Yeah. I mean, the, the film was finally released in color in the UK in 1966, but was missing nine minutes of footage. Uh, I say finally released in color because the first time it was released in America, it was released in black and white. That Columbia said, well, William Castle's other films are black and white, and those were successful, so this is going black and white, too. Really? Why? (laughs) Especially if you're going to put it on a double bill with Hammer's Maniac, which doesn't sound like a good, rollicking William Castle kind of fun. No censors. I don't understand the ratings board here or overseas, apparently. Um, I do like the gun trap. And I do like the little traps, and most of them are, you know, Potiphar owns up to having put all the traps around the house. I don't know if I understood why other than he's just kind of crazy and that's what he does. <laughs> but there are some neat traps. I do like the fact that there's a trap at the doorstep that brings people into the basement because it does get used or referenced more than once, which was a nice you know, moment. And there's some smart filmmaking here. I mean, I, as much as the film's kind of silly, things are mentioned and then not mentioned again until towards the end of the film. There's some nice wraparound moments. And I don't know if that's a screenplay or the directing, but... 
Yeah, my hammer baggage lo- it makes me say this isn't a hammer <laughs> film, damn it. Why did I bring it up for 1951 Down Place? <laughs> uh, so before we started recording, Scott, you said that you liked this film better than us. Yes, I did enjoy this film. There was a couple of the characters that I really liked, and it really it had to do with the ones that had hobbies. I liked Roderick and his hobby of the gun collecting. I liked um, Agatha and her knitting and Potiphar and his end of the world hobby, basically. <laughs> I loved those three characters. I thought they were played really great. I, the, the acting was really good on those. I also liked uh, Casper and Jasper and um, especially Tom's first uh, meeting with Jasper. I thought was was really well done. Now, I did not like Morgan and Morgana. I thought they were both over the top and out of place, and I think they were the ones that were trying to make this more of a, a suspenseful type of film than more of a farce type of film. And I didn't like Cecily at all. And I can't really tell you why, because it would spoil the film. I... Didn't. You're wrong. No, I'm just. <laughs> I don't want that as a recording, guys. <laughs> I liked Cecily because I liked the performance behind the character. Having seen her in Paranoiac, it's a totally different kind of character for me. And, and having just recently watched Paranoiac here for the show and knowing that she transitioned from this into Paranoiac pretty quickly, I was impressed. As, as an actress, she impressed the hell out of me. Well, uh, uh, yes. So I'll say that, that, I think that's where my interest in the Cecily character came from. I liked the actress. I didn't like the character. Ah. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I thought she played it really well and, uh, and agreeing wholeheartedly with your comment about between this and Paranoiac. I thought she, she totally did a great different, yeah. Yeah, totally different. And she pulled both of them off wonderfully. But I just didn't like the character. You mentioned Morgan and Morgana kind of turning this into more of a, a suspense type movie. Well, they were they were the closest thing to that because I I thought everybody else was really playing this up more as a farce. Yeah, I didn't get that vibe from Morgan per se because I felt the oh don't mess with my daughter kind of vibe that I got from him, even though he wasn't speaking, was too goofy for that. But definitely Morgana. But William Castle put us in our place when uh, Tom looked at the seal and saw her head on it. So, yes, which <laughs> what? Was that? <laughs> uh, she gave it her all, though, man. She was into it, and I'm I'm really interested to learn more about her as an actress. I don't know if she did much more Hammer work. I don't think she did any more Hammer work, actually. But uh, yeah, that whole storyline. And again, we don't want to ruin the the ending of the film, but I think there are some interesting choices made between the Cecily and Morgan character or Morgana characters. That it could go one way, but it doesn't go that way. It goes the other way. Well, maybe it really did go that way to begin with. It just one's a good girl, one's a bad girl, and well, whatever. I, I said I want to ruin. I don't want to spoil it. But <laughs> I, I also think this film to me is sort of a mashup between uh, House on Haunted Hill and Clue. I got a little bit. I got vibes from both of those films while watching this one. You think at one point everybody's out to kill each other just sort of like in House on Haunted Hill, and then you've got the whole mystery with uh, your number of suspects uh, leaving one by one throughout the film. You know, I, I kind of half-heartedly thought there's going to be multiple endings to the film at one point. 
<laughs> well, House on Haunted Hill, you know, 1959, directed by William Castle. So definitely you can see that here. And again, going back to the original film, I think the original film is a quintessential example of the old spooky haunted house type movie from that era. Was it Casey? You mentioned Larry Blameyer at one point on the show, uh, The Skeleton of Cadaver. Oh, yeah. And uh, that filmmaker, Blameyer, also did a movie called um, Dark and Stormy Night. Yep. Which could take a lot of inspiration from this subgenre, the old spooky haunted house. You know, everybody's stranded there. Uh, there was a, a movie a few years back called House of the Wolfman that, as much as it was trying to be a House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein type movie, it was really more of a haunted house, old dark house style kind of film. So, I mean, it, it's it's definitely there, and this film plays to all of those those notes and, and, and archetypes of that style of film. I definitely felt Clue as well. Well, you know, here's a, an odd or a stretch for a Clue connection. Tim Curry's in Clue. Tim Curry was also in Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was also shot, I believe, in the house that we saw, the Oakley Estates, which I think is what it's called. And Jeanette Scott's in the theme song for Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly. So there's our, our connections. <laughs> So, and I really got hot when I saw Jeanette Scott fight a trivet that spits poison and kills. That's a stretch. <laughs> yeah, like seven degrees of hammer horror. <laughs> yeah, that should be a segment here on the show from now on, right? Yes. <laughs> Scott and Casey, what did you guys think of? Um, you know, Roderick, you know, Robert Morley and, and Peter Bull, or Bull, those two, you know, the, the Casper Jasper Femme and, and Roderick Femme. What did you think of those two? Well, Casper Jasper, I think they were both pretty good as far as uh, the performance was put in. Casper uh, Jasper had a certain oddball need for the movie, which, you know, I think he did fairly well, like I said before. Uh, there's a little bit, like I said before, it reminds me of uh, Lon Chaney as far as looks go in the Phantom of the Opera, but then, you know, there was a little bit of, you could see like a little bit of Peter, Peter Laurie in there. Uh, Roderick, I thought was great though, just because of his kookiness. <laughs> well, as, as I said earlier, I really like Roderick as well. I thought he was a, um, one of the more fully formed characters. Cause you, you know, you learn about his, his gun habits and everything, but as for Casper and Jasper, there's one scene I wanted to mention. It's between Jasper and Agatha. When Jasper goes to Agatha and you know thinks that they're out to get him, and he's been hiding and everything, and I thought that was that was a really good scene because Agatha was again being that creepy smiling knitting woman, but she's telling you know just acting like she's you know Jasper's mom and saying you know make sure you still eat your meals, but then you can go back <laughs> hey. and hide. <laughs> I ask because I don't know much about them, uh, but apparently they've had a lot of films in which they work together. They've had a lot of experience with one another. We're friends. And according to uh, Robert's wife, Margaret, in a biography called Larger Than Life, she mentions that uh, throughout the course of the film, like over meals, Robert Morley, who played Roderick, would kind of needle Peter Bull. I like your line. Let me have your line. I want that line instead. Can I have that line? Give me that line. And he would get it. So, <laughs> and I don't know how that would work because I don't feel like they had a lot of parts together, a lot of scenes where it's just the two of them back and forth. And I don't know if Castle was like, oh, whatever. Let him have that line. We'll just change the character here, whatever. No big deal. It just seemed 
like I would have liked to have seen those two together based on the information that I have that they had worked together and were friends and that sort of thing. I would like to see those two interact a lot more. Yeah. I, I think I think they would be they could play off each other really well. Yeah. You, they could almost be a good uh, slapstick comedy team. <laughs> yeah. Especially with their size, you know, Peter Bull struck me as a I mean, even though Roderick or, or Morley was kind of the larger one, I could see Peter Bull being kind of like the 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 smaller one and uh, more than being like the straight man. I don't know. Kind of a Laurel and Hardy type of Maybe, maybe a little bit. I mean, though, even though the, the physical physicality isn't there, but I, whatever. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just low on coffee this morning <laughs> and I'm not making sense, but, uh, uh, well, I'm glad Scott liked the film. Is it in your top five? No, it's not in my top five. <laughs> It's it's a fun movie. If you're a fan of uh, Clue, especially, uh, or um, House on Haunted Hill, I think it's worth a watch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, if you are if you are a lifelong Hammer horror fan and you're thinking this is going to be a Hammer film, skip it because you're going to be disappointed. Somehow or other, I feel like Scott just told Casey and I that it's our fault we didn't like the movie as much as he did. <laughs> Read it any way you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't hate the film. I just expected more out of Hammer and, and Castle. I had its moments. You know, I, I like parts of it. And now I'm interested in seeing more Tom Poston, a younger Tom Poston, in comedic roles. My experience with Tom Poston coming to this, my Tom Poston baggage, so to speak, is from Newhart. Yeah, exactly. That's really my only experience with him. So now I want to know more about him as a young comedian, young comic, or at least a young Tom posted in comedic roles. I was talking with Tracy. Tracy watched this film as well, and I, was, I, w- I told her that I thought Tom, he reminded me a little of Jerry Lewis in some of his earlier roles. And she's like, no, I don't see that because he's got a little bit more of the Dean Martin good look straight lace type too and it's like well maybe they just combine martin and lewis together and you get tom poston (laughs) (laughs) without the alcohol of course (laughs) dean martin plus jerry lewis equals tom poston (laughs) what what (laughs) (laughs) so when so when morgana walks in he's supposed to say hey lady hey lady Uh, would have made me like this movie better. Ah, <laughs> uh, ah. Uh, so, so Casey, not a fan. I like you. I didn't hate this movie. I like bits and pieces of it. To me, it was kind of it was kind of a chore to get through. And I think a large part of that though is because of the score. Really, really put me off. It kind of made you know set your teeth on edge, sort of thing. If it, if the score was by somebody like say I don't know like a Ronald Stein or somebody a little bit more into this well Ronald Stein did more sci-fi stuff but you know something a little bit more uh, appropriate for this type of film maybe it would be an easier sell for me but I'm with Casey I I like moments of the movie I'm interested in learning more about some of the people behind the film but honestly I think it's going to be a long time before I watch it again so I assume that uh, this film did not bump any of your films out of the top five either of you you know it might have turned up on a list but not this one. Not the top five list. We don't have a bottom five list. 
I'm, I'm glad I watched it. And I, I don't want to be disrespectful of it or whatever. Cause I mean, it does have a, it is a hammer film and you know, it's got some hammer touches, but I'm not going to go back and watch it again anytime soon. Yeah. Despite you guys and your bad taste that vampire lovers is still firmly in my top five. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So like I said, it's available as part of the William Castle collection box set put out by Columbia, which is an awesome box set, by the way, if you like William Castle films, it's a good one to get. It's got an awesome documentary on there called spine tingler, which was also released as a standalone DVD later. But yeah, that's a great box set. Check it out, track it down, whatever, and watch some other great William Castle films and then move on. So, we got some feedback this time around. Shall we dive into that? Let's shall. Or is there anything else that Scott needs to say about The Old Dark House, one of his new favorite films? <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not in the top five Hammer films. It's in the top five of my all-time films, no matter the genre. <laughs> wow! <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> are, are you going to turn in your card from the uh, Tom Poston fan club over this film? No, no. I, I'm still the president, but... The only member, so. <laughs> hey guys, Joe from Pennsylvania. Just uh, wanted to drop you a quick line and let you know um, I listened to your last podcast, and uh, I'm gonna have to track down some of these uh, uh, Quatermass movies. Boy, really, I, I, I've seen Quatermass in the pit. I think Turner Classic has run that a few times. That's a good movie. That's a very intelligent science fiction movie. And I, I don't think I've ever seen the other the other ones. And uh, I might have seen the one with Brian Donnelly. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I, I would really like to get a hold of those. So now you got me running around ordering videos, you know. So that's okay, though. You know, more movies is always better. And but my, my last call, I called last time. I don't know if I did my thoughts together. But the, the, the film I was thinking about... Uh, with Cushing playing Frankenstein is Frankenstein must be destroyed. I don't know if I, I might have said another title, but that's the one that I like because in that one, he's just a totally unredeeming character. Okay, he's got over the edge. He is the monster in that movie. He is the monster in that movie. And especially in the American version, if I have this correct, the American version, um, there's that, uh, I think the character's name is Helena. I'm not sure uh, there's like a rape scene in there, but I think that was added just for the American audience. I'm not sure about that. Though. I think I might have read that or heard that somewhere. But that's, I do like that one. I, that's one of my one favorite ones. And the reason I like um, horror of Frank Sam with Ralph Bates is because as much as I love the Hammer film, the Dracula Frank Sam, that one is different. And usually, even if it's within a genre that I like, if something's different, I'm going to gravitate toward it and want to check it out. And I think it's because that one is different is the reason I like it. And I also like Ralph Bates in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and uh, Takes the Blood of Dracula. I like him in both of those films, which is why I like him in that Frankenstein role. But, uh, oh, that was it. It's definitely not one of the better ones, but it's just one that I personally happen to like. And, yeah, you guys had mentioned last time that uh, you're glad that I found out that there was so much more to the hammer than the cheesecake sex appeal when I was younger. And, yeah, I'm glad, too, because these are just fantastic films, and I'm glad I found your podcast and uh, you guys are talking about it. And keep up the great work, and uh, I, uh, I'll keep listening. This is Joe from Pennsylvania. Thanks a lot. Bye.
Yes, Joe, ordering more movies is always a good thing to do. In fact, if you head over to 1951 Down Place. (laughs) (laughs) Nice segue. uh, Yeah, you like that? Uh, We've got a link up there that uh, Scott, our webmaster, has put together for us where you can, let's see. Oh, it's just under store. Yes, up at the very top, you'll see store. And you can order the movies that we've talked about here on the show. Uh, including the William Castle box set, which we are talking about this month, as well as other movies that we've talked about. You know, I think I mentioned this. Did I mention this on the show or on Facebook? Twins of Evil was announced to be coming out on Blu-ray. I know that I bought it through the Downplay store, so we can get like two pennies back on that. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, if you're looking for a Hammer movie or whatever, head over there and pick it up. It goes through Amazon, and it helps support the show a little bit, so... Uh, you know, um, I don't know what else to say about horror Frankenstein that we didn't talk about last time. You know, it's it's a complete revamp or reboot of the entire Frankenstein franchise for uh, Hammer. Uh, Ralph Bates is pretty good. I do like him a lot. But it's Peter Cushing, man. Cushing is Frankenstein. I'm on Team Peter. Hey, we went through a whole review and we didn't mention him. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look at us. Are we slipping? <laughs> I guess. He's in next month's movie, so I think we'll be we'll we'll we'll, we'll save it up. We'll enjoy it that much more. <laughs> I don't really know about the rape scene in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Uh, if it was added for American audiences or not, I we should look into that. Maybe when we cover the movie at some point here on the show, we'll we'll talk about that. I have not seen the movie, so I can't comment. It's a good one. Like Joe said, it's a really good one. Cushing makes the total turn from that one. You start to see the turn in Revenge of Frankenstein from just really curious to evil bastard. But yeah. <laughs> Wait, well, you guys have been telling me it's a good one, but now that Joe says so, I believe it. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> uh, we also got a couple of voicemails from Rod from the Natchy cast, and uh, because he's a wordy dude, uh, the voicemail cut off. So I'm just putting them together into one long message for us here. Hello, folks. It's Rod from the Nashy cast again. Just calling to give you guys more kudos for another excellent episode. I love that you guys tackled the Quatermass experiment so early on, relatively speaking, in the podcast, only with episode eight. Quatermass films are phenomenally good, and I think that uh, anytime you can talk about them, it's a good thing. I was really happy that you noticed the attention to detail that director Val Guest lavished onto this production. Uh, this is not the only time you will notice how good a director and how good he is at putting enough detail on screen to keep you interested and to also draw you in. He's very good at this. Of course, since uh, one of you, <clears throat> that would be Brother D, keeps talking about wanting to cover Hell as a City, remember Val Guest made that film as well, and uh, you could do a lot worse than just working your way through the films that Val Guest made from, oh, around the early 50s to the late 60s. He made some amazing things. The Day the Earth Caught Fire is one that, if you haven't seen, let me highly recommend that you eventually do. Uh, Camp on Blood Island is good. Uh, of course, he did make the uh, the second Quatermass film, which I think is even better than the first one, but I'm glad you guys really liked the first one as much as you did, because I honestly feel that the Quatermass films, and therefore the Quatermass stories, got better with each successive one. Those, those first three are absolutely fantastic. I think they get better and better as they go along, culminating in the brilliant Quatermass in the Pit, of course. Uh, you do realize, of course, there was a fourth Quatermass film penned by Nigel Neal. It was uh, called The Quatermass Experiment. It was only done as a... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it was just called Quatermass. Pardon me. 
uh, and it was a television, a four-part television series that you can get on DVD now, and I do recommend it, but I will say this. Keep in mind that that fourth one that came out in 1979, uh, it has John Mills playing uh, Professor Quatermass, uh, and a few other people that you'll recognize, like Simon McCorkendale, and a few other people like that. But it's really very good. But I warn you, it's dark. It's got a very dark ending. For those of you who thought, who think that the uh, Quatermass in the Pit ending is kind of dark and dour, which it is, Quatermass has an even darker and dour, dourer ending. Oh, man, now I can't even speak. But I, great coverage of the first Quatermass film, guys. Keep it up. Uh, Val Guest was a British treasure behind the director's chair. Brother D, I got to say, I think you're going to really like uh, uh, Andrew Keir when you get to uh, Quatermass of the Pit. I think he's fantastic. As for the, the remake that they did, the BBC did in uh, 2005 of the Quatermass Experiment, not very good. They tried really hard to recreate how they did the original series on live television, and it just doesn't really. It's Rod again. Clearly, I can't say anything in a short enough period of time. Three minutes is just not enough. But as I was saying, the uh, the 2005 remake of the Quatermass Experiment isn't very good. They shot it live in studio sets and out in um, out in kind of the back lot, and though. They run into a lot of problems. First of all, it was raining the night they filmed it, and uh, wanting to keep it live keeps it from really ever gaining enough energy and and, and uh, interest to really make it to make it over the hump that it needed to get over to be something that was really compelling. It's just never very good. It's kind of a it's kind of an interesting thing to see, but it's not very good. Um, so there's that. By the way, if you're curious about the original Quatermass uh, miniseries done for television, uh, you know, all, all three of them. Uh, well, Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, and Quatermass in the Pit. There is a Region 2 DVD set uh, called the Quatermass Collection that uh, you can pick up. I picked it up, and I have it right here in my hands. It has uh, all of Quatermass in the Pit, all of Quatermass 2, and the two surviving episodes of the Quatermass Experiment. So if you're curious and want to see those, they are there. I do remember this set not being particularly uh, pricey. It's a three-disc set. And it is a shame, of course, that we only have the two episodes of the Quatermass Experiment. But if you want to see them, they are out there and uh, well worth checking out. Um, I have not yet watched the full Quatermass 2 thing. I've watched the two uh, existing episodes of Quatermass Experiment and really enjoyed them. Um, Quatermass Experiment is, I mean, I'm sorry, the Quatermass in the Pit uh, is it, it, really neat. And I'm not going to say anything. It's something you ought to check out. Also, check out anything done by Nigel Neal. Highly recommend the Stone Tape. But, boy, we're well afield from Hammer at this point. Guys, you're doing fantastic work. Glad to see everybody enjoyed Quatermass Experiment. And uh, keep it up. You're doing, you're doing fine. Now, Scott, you, you've seen Quatermass in the Pit, right? Oh, yes. I, I yeah, wholeheartedly, that's one of your top. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with, um, with, with Rod there. I've seen the three films, and I believe they get, uh, you know, it's great, greater, and awesome. Is, is a good description. <laughs> Great, greater, and awesome. <laughs> we just skip greatest and go straight to awesome. Yes. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I want to see the uh, Quatermass in the Pit and talk about it on the show, but man, is Brian Dunlavy, man. He, the man's awesome. How can you replace him with a British guy? It works. Trust me. <laughs> I know you don't t- I know you don't tend to trust Scott, but I'll, I'll agree with Scott, so you can trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I also had the um, advantage of seeing Quatermass in the Pit on a big screen. 
which was totally awesome Ooh, yeah. as well. I guess, yeah. yeah. Uh, Val Guest, uh, somebody we don't talk too much about here on the show. I know we're always like Peter Cushing, Terrence Fisher, you know, whatever. But Val Guest did a lot of work for Hammer. Uh, we did talk about a Val Guest film when we did The Abominable Snowman. You know, and there is that attention to detail in that as well. I think we all talked, if I remember correctly, um, which I know was only a couple of months ago, but we, we talked a lot about how, uh, you know, the sets in Abominable Snowman were just so detailed and perfect. And, I mean, Val Guest, you know, brought that to the table, and, and I think he did that with the Equator Mass experiment as well. Uh, Camp on Blood Island, I've not seen. I know that's a Hammer film. The Day the Earth Caught Fire, not a Hammer film, but I believe I've seen that years ago on VHS. But I couldn't tell you for sure. It, it kind of blends into that period of my life where I was renting anything that had anything to do with, like, The Day the Earth Sit Still, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, or anything like that. Now, have you guys watched any of the Quatermass television shows? No. You've got some of those, don't you? I've got uh, Quatermass in the Pit uh, is, is the only one that I've got, and I really enjoy it. I don't like it as much as the film, personally, but I do enjoy the, the miniseries as well. Cool. And uh, thank you for saying we're doing fine, Rod. <laughs> I'll be able to sleep tonight knowing that Rod thinks we're doing fine. <laughs> uh, well, we got some more voicemails, but you want to do an email? Well, we've got a, I'll do a real quick one here. Um, our friend uh, Vince Rotolo from the B Movie Cast sent us a note that just says, just listen to 1951 Downplace Episode 8, The Quatermass Experiment. Most excellent, and not just because you mentioned us. <laughs> so he must like this one now because we just mentioned the B Movie Cast again. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Vince. We have any others? We have two others. We have one from uh, Dave uh, Anderson, and he writes, Hello, Brother D. Need a nickname, Scott and Casey. Thank you for talking about this movie. I'm familiar with Quatermass 2 and the alien invasion via meteorites in the color movie Quatermass in the Pit featuring the ghosts of Mars. They are a-holes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you talk about these movies sometime. You know, I hope we talk about them too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He says, I can only vote if I have a Facebook account. And unfortunately, that's true. That's where our vote on what movie we're going to watch in July, is it? Uh, yeah, I yep. think so. Yep. Yeah. And uh, he then goes on and says, are there any spiritual successors or modern day Quater Masses? He says there was a miniseries in the UK, then remade in the US called 11th Hour. The UK version starred Patrick Stewart, but the show fell flat for me. Fox has Fringe with the John Noble character. And he says casting a new Quatermass movie sounds like a lot of fun. Someone alive, we're not doing CGI, he says. We, look, <laughs> we should look for someone who has not been a scientist before. And uh, right away, that rules out uh, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> and uh, he, his talent pool for a uh, modern-day Quatermass is Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alan Rickman, oh, or, oh. or Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> Gaiman? Gaiman. He says he's not done much in front of the camera, but, no. he does, but he does don a beekeeper suit and shows no fear with dealing with his hives. <laughs> the only... Acting, I can think that Neil Gaiman has done is an is an episode of The Simpsons. Uh, he did some horror hosting, I believe, on 
God, I can't remember which one network it was. It was TCM or AMC or something where he introduced like the movies on Halloween night. Hmm. I, I don't know if he's done any real acting though. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I, yeah, I don't. He would be too. See, I'm still stuck in Brian Dunleavy land. So I want that bull in a china shop kind of. It's science, damn it! Get out of my way, you know. And I don't feel Neil Gaiman <laughs> would do that. No, but I think Alan Rickman would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hoffman would be creepy at it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I think Rickman would be fun. And that would definitely get my wife to watch him. Uh, she's a huge Alan Rickman fan. Right on. So. I don't know why. I don't. I, God, I'm about to say this out loud. What about Neil Patrick Harris? I don't know if he could rein in the goofiness. Yeah. I don't know. I, I saw stuff. could be settled now. I, I've seen Starship Troopers. Come on. <laughs> that's true. That is very true. <laughs> See, but that's kind of. But the. I don't know. That's all. That's part of his persona now, though. So I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I now now I have a picture of Quatermass with two babes on his arms. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Oh, I know who I had at mine. Uh, Brian Cox. See, yeah, you did mention that last week. That still would be good. Yeah. Yeah, he's not British, but I think it could work. What about Brian Brown? The Australian guy from uh, FX and a whole bunch of other movies. Ooh. Oh, yeah, maybe. I mean, he's older. He's older, but, you know, if this was like 10 years ago. Yeah. I love the FX movies. Yeah, me too. Although he has, <laughs> Brian Brown did play a scientist in uh, the On the Beach television miniseries. So maybe that takes him out of the running. That takes him out of the running, yes. Yeah, on the Beach. <laughs> <laughs> God, I don't know who else would. Maybe we should start that up as a. Oh, how mean is that? I was about to say we should start that up over on Facebook, but David's not on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it anyway. Yeah, I'll do it anyway. But uh, let's throw it out to the listeners. Why not? Who who would you, using David A's stipulations, he hasn't played a scientist before. If we were remaking or, or doing a version of Quatermass now, who would you cast as Quatermass? Not a scientist. Never played a scientist before. They've got to be alive. We'll just make that kind of a running. We'll do that for next week, next Sh- month. Shatner. Oh God! Oh God! Oh! (laughs) What is wrong with you, man? (laughs) Uh, Well, Well, another one I could see just based on looks. While I'm thinking of another one, I could see just based on looks before he went um, down the dark tunnel of alcohol was uh, Rip Torn. Ooh. He's got the look. He does. Speaking now now you brought another one to mind. How about Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they could use Josh Brolin for a younger Quater Mass if they needed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And thus our time traveling Quater Mass Avengers story keeps it going. <laughs> He's riding the golden chariot with uh, with Kronos. Yes, <laughs> I've never written fan fiction seriously, <laughs> but now I just might. It's time to start. 
Uh, well, thanks, David, for writing in. <laughs> and giving us lots of things to consider. <laughs> awesome. Uh, we got a voicemail from Thor. Hi there. This is Thor of uh, Thor's Hour of Thunder uh, podcast. Uh, and I just got into your guys' podcast through Bloody Good Horror, actually. And I just got to say, I absolutely love it. I got to, you know, uh, don't, 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 don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't sell bloody good horror, but I like it a lot better than bloody good horror. It's uh, always been uh, got into Hammer back in college, and I've uh, just been a huge fan. But it, it, it's sort of hard to, uh, at least uh, I've always had trouble finding out sort of what you know what the best ones are, which ones I should be watching. So it was uh, thank you for recommending uh, you know, the first one you talked about that I hadn't heard of was Vampire Lovers. In episode six, and uh, I really dug that um i mean uh you know wish it had more peter cushing in it i'm definitely a uh a, a, you know big cushing fan just like you guys are so i uh you know sad he had a more limited role but uh you know overall that movie was uh, was really fun and you know super hot so uh anyway that's all just wanted to uh send my appreciation keep up the good work this is thor signing off have a great day see <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> he I, I, but he doesn't like bloody good horror. <laughs> well, see, I was going to ask, what part do you like best, Casey? That he likes the vampire lovers or he likes us better than your home podcast? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind that he likes us better than bloody good horror. Just just don't tell Eric and the gang that, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, vampire lovers, anything is better with me, more cushing. The old Dark House would have been better with more Cushing. Yes, it would have been. What role would he have played? Maybe Roderick? He would have... Uh, I suppose at what point... Let's see, how old would he have been? He couldn't have played the American. Seeing as he's British. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Scott. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Damn you and your logic, Scott. This is when we find out that Peter Cushing is really some dude from Boston who's just really good at accents. That's how much of a good actor he is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to see him in the in the patriarch of the family role. You know, I, I just I don't see him doing the goofy Potiphar role. No, and he couldn't yeah. be Morgan or Morgana. <laughs> Christopher Lee could have pulled off the American. Yeah, or Morgan. He's big yeah. enough. Surly enough. Should we throw this out to the uh, the the listeners too? If you're going to recast it with all hammer stable of actors, <laughs> excellent. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, how about Oliver Reed then as Morgan? Ooh. <laughs> Except he's not the big burly guy at this point. At this point, if Oliver Reed becomes Morgan, he's the he's, he's just, a scrapper. He's just a, he a drunk. A drunk. <laughs> A drunk and he wants to box you down, yeah. All right, so two questions of the month so far. Can we go for a third with our next email? <clears throat> our next email is from Ed Perry. It says, Dear All, I've just recently come across your Hammer podcast, and I just wanted to let you know that you guys are doing a superb job. I love your thorough research as well as your personal feelings about these films. I'm a huge fan of these films. I caught them in my teens on AMC Monster Fests, and began hunting down these titles at my local Ma and Pa video stores. 
Once I got through most of the horror titles, I came across the book House of Horror, The Complete Hammer Film Story, which gave a very thorough filmography, which helped me search for their non-horror titles. And to my surprise, these films were just as excellent as their horror output. I can't explain my infatuation with these films, but I think a part of it is that they were so well made because this studio had heart in their projects they were working on, and it shows on the screen. I have quite the collection of Hammer output on DVD, not just all of their horror and thriller titles, but also their noir, psychological, sci-fi, and adventure titles. One day I would like to see some of their war titles, but because of the various studios that own these rare titles, I will just have to sit back and wait. I envy you guys because you have not seen a lot of these and seeing them for the first time. I remember when I saw these films and the joy that they brought me as a film fan. I constantly hear that you are Peter Cushing fans, and I couldn't agree with you more. Yay! (laughs) He was simply the best. I recommend this little gem, Cash on Demand. It's an awesome little film that reteams him with Andre Morel, who was simply awesome in his own right as well. And they had very different rules that they had in The Hound of the Baskervilles. I don't want to give anything away, so less be said about this film, the better. You guys can see it for yourself and thank me later. Keep up your fine work, and thank you so much for putting my favorite film studio in the limelight once again. Sincerely yours, Ed Perry. And then he adds on his top five Hammer films, and he says it's so hard because I love them all. His five, uh, number five is Twins of Evil, four, Cash on Demand, three, Horror of Dracula, two, The Devil Rides Out, and number one, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Uh, cash on demand. Uh, when we talked about how Hammer doesn't have a Christmas film, I got a couple of emails from people saying that they do. So, and this was back when we did the Abominable Snowman in December. So, uh, I think this upcoming Christmas, upcoming being what six, seven months away, we'll talk about cash on demand because it takes place two days before Christmas. What do you guys think of that? Sounds great. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, Peter Cushing, Andre Morel, love those two together in Hound of the Baskervilles. So, it'll be good to see. Uh, and I believe it is available as the Icons of Suspense DVD box set. Yeah, Icons of Suspense collection, Hammer Films, which has an awesome Peter Cushing image on the cover. Um, let's see, what else did he talk about? Oh, the war films. I'm eager to get into one of those. I mean, I know I've been pushing film noir and things like that, and I still want to do Hell is a City, but I'm, you know, and that's why I want to do the old Dark House. I'm fascinated by their non horror output. Well, I did notice that Ed didn't mention their comedies, so he might not have seen The Old Dark House. Or their on-the-buses stuff, which is, I think, what they're most known for in the comedic arena. I think there's like four or five of the the on-the-buses. Which are totally different in feel. Uh, I've listened to the soundtrack album for that, and it's just, wow. Totally different than anything they've ever done. But, you know, again, Hammer wasn't just a horror studio. They did a bunch of those. Anyway, I'm babbling. We'll talk about Cash on Demand. We'll do some of their war films at some point. I hope so. Are you familiar with the book that he mentioned, House of Horror, the complete Hammer film story? I am not. I'm not overly familiar with the, uh, the one filmography book that he mentioned, the House of Horror, complete Hammer film story by Jack Hunter. Uh, I've seen it on the shelf at the local Powell's, but I haven't picked it up. I think for filmography purposes, uh, we've been using the Hammer Films and Exhaustive Filmography, which uh, was just re-released as a, a, a paperback edition not too long ago, right? 
That is correct, and you can also uh, find that on our uh, downplay store under the books. Uh, there seems to be a, a good amount of recent Hammer material, uh, and I do like that a lot of it now doesn't just say, you know, they did horror. You know, I mean, even the House of Horror, the complete Hammer film story, if it steered him toward, like, the war stuff, I mean, that's great. Okay, we got two more voicemails here, and I think we'll just play them back-to-back because they're from Ken. Hey, guys. It's uh, Ken from Indy. Uh, Ken, the horror hound guy. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, I just wanted to say you guys are doing a great job. Uh, I'm really digging the show. I've been savoring these uh, episodes. I've been kind of slow going through them. And uh went back and re-listened to uh, uh, Curse Frankenstein and uh, been watching curse uh, again uh first time in a long time and there were two things i was curious about you guys didn't mention it but i kind of struck me one one of the, the first thing kind of struck me um uh the weird kind of look that uh that they were going for with uh, uh christopher lee's the monster get up made me really think of um uh the sorry the uh the uh somnambulist the, the uh, um kind of the, the, the villain in uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the silent film. Uh, it's, you know, black peacoat, uh, although Cesare had like a, you know, a sweater or whatever, but they have a kind of similar look, and I don't know if that's something that maybe Sangster or Fisher were trying to go for, but it just kind of crossed my mind. And then the other thing is, as a kid, I, was, I read these books because I'm a horror freak since I was a kid, um, these horror uh, books about Frankenstein and about these movies, and there was something about uh, there was a Japanese cut of Curse that had a they they added an extra eye <laughs> to Christopher Lee. Um, I that sticks out so in my brain like that was just that was you know a major thing when I was a kid. Like holy crap, the uh, the Japanese versions are so much more worse so much more, you know, gory and whatever. Um, but I've never heard that anywhere else, so maybe I'm just, you know, losing it. But uh, anyway, um, those are two things I just thought about, and I thought I'd give you guys a call. Um, and just wanted to tell you, keep up the great work, and I'm moving on now to uh, Revenge of Frankenstein. That's one of my favorites, and uh, uh, thanks for uh, uh, jump-starting me uh, again in, uh, into the world of Hammer. So keep up the great work. Uh, I'll call back. Thanks. Hey guys, it's uh, it's Ken again, and I just thought of something else, uh, Frankenstein related and Hammer related. I thought I'd, I'd uh, ask you guys about maybe spark a debate. Um, I'm not sure of the date, but if the Quatermass series came out before um, Curse of Frankenstein, I'm just curious. Do you guys think um, that uh, Quatermass was really more of an inspiration to? Um, um, uh, Cushing's uh, take on the character or the way it's written uh, more than what people have commented on, I guess. I, uh, I've i just recently been getting into the, the Quatermass stuff. I've just seen the first one. I still have the second one to, to get through and then, you know, the third. But uh, Brian Dunleavy is a beast <laughs> in, um, in, the, uh, in the first one. I mean, everything must be sacrificed for science. must push ahead, you know, no matter what. And that really seems to to kind of steer um, the uh, Frankenstein series as well. And 
was curious if you guys think that maybe that was kind of a catalyst or if that was, you know, something that they could draw from. They're like, hey, let's move the series into more of a uh, science, exploration of science as opposed to just the creature of the week. Um, I don't know, something I was thinking about. Anyway, uh, I'll uh, call back, I guess. (laughs) You guys have a good one. Thanks. Bye. So for early Cushing Frankenstein, I could see Quatermass Quatermass, a bit of a catalyst for that. But like you said before, there's there's a turning point where he goes from scientifically curious to just flat out evil. I could see that, though. I mean, I feel like a lot of the films before Curse of Frankenstein that Hammer did all kind of served to kind of get them in the right place. Four-sided triangle, Scott's favorite. Um, the Quatermass films. I mean, they all kind of served to get Hammer on the path to Curse of Frankenstein. I don't think Cushing would have been an interesting Quatermass at one point in his life. That might have been fun to see. We'll just have to get him in that golden chariot time-traveling mode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Lee as the somnambulist or the sleepwalker from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That's, you know, he, he talks about how the costuming was pretty similar as well, right down to that, like, that kind of coat that he was wearing, that sort of thing. I could see that a little bit. What, what, what do you guys, have you guys seen Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? No, I'm sorry. I haven't seen it. I've seen it, but it's been so long. I can't yeah. really say. It's been a while since I've seen it as well. It's a really interesting film. The set design alone is pretty amazing. I could see the connection maybe in terms of how he looked, uh, costuming, and maybe even some of Lee's performance uh, because Lee does some – he's not flat-out miming, but there is some mime in what he does as the monster. And the Sleepwalker character does kind of have that kind of herky-jerky kind of miming kind of look to him in Caligari. So interesting. Uh, Revenge of Frankenstein's awesome. As far as like the extra eye in Curse of Frankenstein, there's been a lot of talk about like restored footage, missing footage, things like that. And I'm hoping that once Curse of Frankenstein gets the Blu-ray treatment, we might see some things that might have been missing from all the different versions of the films that we've seen before. You know, I know Horror of Frankenstein, I'm sorry, Horror of Dracula had some footage found in Japan that's being reincorporated into future releases, hopefully. So hopefully we'll get to see this extra eye. Oh, and yes, indeed, Brian Dunleavy is a beast. A, a, a beast for science. <laughs> <laughs> we should thank everybody for calling in and, and writing uh, in. Yeah, definitely. So, how do people do that next time? Well, first, Derek, they have to pick up a phone. No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they can call us at area code seven six five two zero three nineteen fifty one. Or they can go over to our website at 1951downplace.com. And on the right side of the page, there is a place to click and send us a voicemail where they can record using their own computer and microphone, and it will send it to us, and they don't have to have any long-distance charges. Or time limits. Uh, no, it still has a five. That has a five-minute time limit. The phone call has a three-minute time limit. I think you're just saying that to spite me now. <laughs> Either that or to piss off Rod. I'm not really sure which. <laughs> or you can always send in an MP3 or whatever. We can play those too. Yes, and if you want Rod to do that. as a podcast of his own and won't have a time limit at home if he records something like that. Anyway. Yes, and he can do that or anybody can do that by uh, sending that or an email to podcast at 1951downplace.com. 
Scott mentioned the website, 1951 Down Place, which is where we've got the store that we uh, pimped a little bit and also has a list of the upcoming episodes, which is really only filled up through July because July is our listener pick month. And I think at this point, we said May was the deadline for voting for July's listener pick. Let me pull up the Facebook page. Four-sided triangle. Come on, four-sided triangle. It's not four-sided triangle. Crap. Oh. <laughs> Dracula Prince of Darkness. That is the winner. Dracula dead and loving it. <laughs> well, yes. But but isn't the old dark house I better than Dracula? I smell an April Fool show. <laughs> <laughs> so Dracula, Prince of Darkness has won the listener poll to help us program the show. That'll be what we cover in July. But in June, we're hanging out with Peter Cushing again. Yay! <laughs> with she. I am excited for She because I have not seen it. It's got Ursula Andress and it looks pretty, you know, the, the adventure aspect of it looks pretty spectacular. Yes, yes. It is one of their big adventure epics. It was one of the most expensive Hammer films produced to date. Uh, it is also a film that had been done before. It's based on a, a novel by H. Ryder Haggard, I believe is his name. I'd have to double check that so I don't sound like an idiot when we cover she. Uh, but it had been done before. Uh, this is Hammer's take on it, and I can't wait. The music is gorgeous. It looks amazing. No Tom posted to be seen. <laughs> I'm excited. I believe that um, I actually have a little bit of a collectible about She. I have one of the original press kits from the film She. Oh, wow. So we can talk a little bit about that as well. Well, (laughs) la-dee-da. Jealous. (laughs) So as of the time of this recording. For the non-Hammer film fan or non-Hammer film uh, person in the group, I actually have something that you guys are jealous of. Well, yes. for now, for now, as of this recording, but uh, both Casey and I know where you live. <laughs> so um, we, I, I, I said Casey, he's a lot closer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so by the time we record next month, one of us will have the press kit from Shane. <laughs> and we'll have a new co-host. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rod, you know, submit your resume now. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess I really appreciate all the support we've gotten. Uh, the reviews on the iTunes store, the comments on the Facebook page. Just thank you for listening, guys, and thank you for supporting us. We love doing the show, and uh, we've just had a blast doing it so far. And uh, just thanks for your support. Somebody take us out. <laughs> thanks for listening to 1951 Down Place, everybody. We'll see you next month. That's what you're going to give us? <laughs> this is Scott from the Tom Poston uh, Fan Club Society president. And thanks for listening to 1951 Down Place. We'll see you next month. Your monthly home of Tom Poston discussion.
this point where I run some outtakes, maybe some bloopers from the previous show. But instead of doing that this time around, there's actually a little bit of discussion that we had that spoiled the movie. So because we wanted to put this out there, but didn't want to spoil the film and the conversation proper, here it is now. Plus some random chit-chat while we were taking a coffee and restroom break in the middle of the recording. I was just looking at the film poster for the old, old Dark House with the line, The Key to a Nut House of Terror. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I found one of the, the, the poster art image of Tom Poston kind of bent over looking over his shoulder. I find very awkward. Yes. I, I do like this poster because it's got uh, Charles Adams' drawing of the house on the poster. Yeah. yeah. I like you die laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this movie, they didn't know what to do with it. They released it with like, like Maniac. It got released as a double feature with Big Deal at Dodge City at one point. It's just, they didn't know what to do with it. It's such an odd. We're, we're going to cut this part this out, right? Sat- yeah. Yeah. The reason I, I read didn't. something this morning it. Go ahead, Casey. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, I was <laughs> just going to say, I read that they sat on it for like three years before they released it. Yeah. I was just going to say why I didn't like uh, Jeanette Scott's character. Uh, About halfway through the film, I figured out she was the, the one the behind it. One? She, yeah. w- she was the only one smart enough to be able to f- to set all these traps and do all this stuff. Yeah. That's what I didn't like about her. Oh, yeah, it was... It was pretty uh, obvious to me, yeah, that she was, and, and even before I did all the research beforehand. But um, you know, the first film, though, the James Whale version, really interesting. Um, you know, it's only a year after Frankenstein, but it's it's such a more uh, technically well made film. I mean, Frankenstein's a great film, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of set the camera down, action, cut, move to the next scene. You know, it's a, it's not overly sophisticated and I know at that point you know the monster movie is is not really a formula yet for Universal the old dark house has a lot of really interesting uh, elements going on and it's just a really interesting movie um, Karloff is still playing a you know a silent monster type in fact the very the very first part of the film is a, a title card from Universal saying that yes Frankenstein or Karloff does play Morgan in this film it's the same guy who played Frankenstein's monster. We'd make this clear so there's no argument about it later or something like that. It's just an odd kind of, hmm. you know, we're going to further establish Karloff as our monster guy by saying that he's not the monster from this one. He's a monster in this one now. Um, it's just really weird. It's also an odd film in that it was released by Universal. And then unlike all the other Universal films at that time, I believe this one's in the public domain now. And I don't know how that happened. I don't know how Universal still has the rights to, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, things like that. But the old Dark House is out. I mean, legally, I would think they should all be, but whatever. Interesting film. Uh, also, in the old Dark House, the guy who plays Dr. Pretorius and Bride of Frankenstein turns up in that one. Uh, and he's a really good actor. And the old Dark House, knowing that James Whale was gay, has a lot going on in terms of uh, comments that are made left and right about, you know, the men of the film and, you know, I'll keep you warm at night and things like that. You know, there's a lot of, you know, questioning who you can fall in love with and just the subtlety is so in your face. Subtlety's in your face. Yeah, that's what I said. 
The subtlety's right there in your face. Well, I'm going to I'm going to add the uh, William Castle film collection to Down Places um, shop. Right on. In, in case somebody wants yeah. to wants to check this out. I, do, I need to get my hands on that set. Was, uh, that is a good set. I do like me some William Castle. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, fifty five twenty nine on Amazon right now. Oh wow! It seems it just went up. I mean, it's still worth it. Wonder but, if it's out of print. Doesn't say that it is. Its list price is seventy five ninety nine. Oh. It's got a ton of movies in it though, including I mean some good ones. I mean, Thirteen Ghosts is in there, so. Yeah, Thirteen Frightened Ghost, Thirteen Ghost, Homicidal, Straightjacket, The Old Dark House. Mr. Uh, Sardonicus, The Tingler, Zots. Zots is another one of those ones that was supposed to be like this horror comedy kind of one that's just odd. And isn't... Is Tom posted in that one too? I don't know. Mr. Sardonicus is really good. Zots was 1962. And Tom Poston and Jim Bacchus. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a good box set. Anyway. So I have uh, notes on the voicemails. Um, I don't have my email. I don't have any of the emails in front of me. Uh, I can get them in front of me as soon as I find the right folder here. <laughs> 